It's philosophy talk. All the flights in and out of your country have been suspended indefinitely. And the new government has sealed all the borders, which means that your passport and visa are no longer valid. So currently, you are a citizen of nowhere. Is citizenship the best way to be guaranteed basic rights and privileges? Why should your rights depend on the random fact of where you're born? What is your nationality? I'm a drunkard. <laughs> and that makes Rick a citizen of the world. Why is it so hard to become a citizen? In one year, you can petition for citizenship. I must wait for one year. You know how many people want to get in this country? Is citizenship the best recipe for non-discrimination? Our guest is Arash Abizadeh from McGill University. Citizenship and justice. I am not going on vacation. I want to be a citizen. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Why do some countries make it so hard to become a citizen? Should your political rights really depend on where you were born? Would it be better to live in a world without borders? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from our respective shelters in place via the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, we're thinking about citizenship and justice. Citizenship and justice, they go together like a horse and carriage. Not a good rhyme, but still, citizenship is an integral to justice. It's what makes us all equal under the law. Wait, wait, who's this us? Well, in the United States, us is U.S. citizens. I mean, all U.S. citizens have the right to vote, the right to run for office, the responsibility to serve on a jury. Yeah, but what about people who aren't citizens? Like, what about subjects of Her Majesty, such as yourself? <laughs> you don't get to vote or run for office here. How is that fair? Well, I mean, much as I'd love to run for president, Ray, I'm not super bothered by that. I feel like it's you know, it's about who has a stake in how things go. If someone's lived in Sweden their whole life, you know, maybe they shouldn't have the right to vote in Botswana or Canada or something. Maybe they should stick to the place they know most about and care most about. Yeah, yeah, but people can know and care all about a country, even if they're not citizens. They can live there and pay taxes, invest in their communities, learn about local politics. And apply to become citizens. Sometimes. In a lot of countries, the application process is really hard, and not everybody who tries gets through. And, and you know, meanwhile, other people just get into the club for free, just based on who their parents were. They don't even have to care about civics at all. Okay, so what's your solution then? Citizenship for everybody? Well, yeah, why not? Why should rich democracies be allowed to hoard their resources? Why shouldn't they share them equally with the rest of the world? Hey, I'm all about sharing your toys, especially in theory, but in practice, Ray, I mean, can countries really open their borders to everybody? Liberal democracies would be overwhelmed. Their, their economies would collapse. Their social institutions would collapse. Okay, fine, Josh. Maybe. Maybe that would be true if we opened our borders completely. But our borders still have to be as closed as they are now. I just think that everyone who's affected by a government decision should have a say in that decision. Really? Everybody? I mean, people who are applying to immigrate, people who are just thinking about immigration, people who, I don't know, just want to go on a vacation somewhere? 
Well, I mean, definitely the people who want to immigrate. And, and definitely expats like you. Hey, why weren't you allowed to vote in against Brexit anyway? Oh, man, why don't you pour some lemon juice on that paper cut while you're about it? Ah, uh, sorry, Josh. But look, the point is, everyone should have a say in running the country, shouldn't they? I mean, it's a democracy. I don't know. I just feel like at that point, why bother having countries at all? Imagine all the people, Josh, sharing all the world. <laughs> I'm just going to say it, Ray. You're a dreamer. <laughs> okay, maybe it's utopian to imagine a cosmopolitan democracy with absolutely no borders. But look, can't we at least make the rules more reasonable? I mean, where do the rules even come from? That's a great question. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shireen Adl, to find out more about the history of American citizenship. She files this report. It might surprise you, but when America's founding fathers wrote the Constitution, they didn't include anything about what makes someone a U.S. citizen. They generally followed the same rules that their old mother country, Great Britain, had at the time. That meant if someone was born on the land, then that person became a citizen. But there were exceptions. Dred Scott basically held that blacks were not intended to be U.S. citizens. That's Carol Nakanoff, a political science professor at Swarthmore College. She's talking about a famous 1857 Supreme Court case when a black man who was born into slavery sued for his freedom and lost. The court ruled he couldn't sue because he wasn't a citizen and that basically it was up to each state to decide who was and was not a citizen. It wasn't until after the Civil War ended and slavery was abolished, almost 10 years after the Dred Scott decision, that the federal government finally spelled out what it means to be a citizen of the United States. The first section of the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868, says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. From then on, with few exceptions, anyone born in the country, regardless of race, would be viewed as a citizen. But that only covered one route to citizenship. There was also the question of naturalization. Settler nations were happy to have immigrants and treat them as citizens, that is, uh, their children would be citizens, if they were seen as assimilable or like them. From the beginning, it had generally been pretty easy for white immigrants to apply for citizenship. But then, once anyone born in the U.S. was guaranteed citizenship, it wasn't long before the country passed its first law restricting immigration from certain places. It began in 1875 with the passage of the Page Act that basically treated all Chinese women coming to the United States on their own as prostitutes. After that, the federal government continued to make laws policing who was and was not welcome to start a new life, have kids, and settle in the U.S. From 1921 until 1965, the restrictions were really designed to not only keep America white, but to keep Southern and Eastern European, often agricultural immigrants out, uh, lower income, lower education, uh, Jews, etc. It had gotten to a point where the U.S. was very carefully controlling how many people from each country could immigrate. Overall, immigration declined. But then, in 1965, 
the government passed a law that protected people seeking visas from discrimination based on race, sex, or nationality. That changed everything. Since then, the U.S. has become increasingly diverse. My own grandparents immigrated from Egypt in 1973, and I have a friend who immigrated and became a citizen recently. What I remember most is waiting. That's Ali Abdelmohsen. He was a reporter and artist in Egypt before he relocated to the States with his American wife. One of the frustrating things about the wait is you can't make any changes in life that would affect your status or anything written in the application. That means you can't move apartments or get a new job. But he says, overall, it was easier than he expected it to be. They asked very simple questions. He thought they might want to look through old photos and emails for proof that he and his wife were in a real, substantial relationship. And once they were in the States, he even thought someone might show up at his door. But none of that happened. Ironically, I thought it would take less time, but be a lot more difficult and a lot more big. It was a total of four years between the time Ali applied for his visa to immigrate and when he went in to pledge allegiance as a new citizen of the United States. In the end, he said he thought his case was actually pretty straightforward. Part of it is your personal situation, but I also think a huge part of it is what's going on in the world at that time. He's right. Most recently, in 2017, President Trump banned travel for people from seven predominantly Muslim countries, even just to visit. The Trump administration has made a lot of changes restricting immigration, and they've also made it harder for immigrants to naturalize. Wait times have gone up, and the fees have nearly doubled in the past 10 years. But the one thing that would be very hard for any administration to change is birthright citizenship. Here's Professor Nakanoff again. It's not even probable that Congress could change the rule on birthright citizenship. Uh, we believe it most likely would require a constitutional amendment. Which means if you're born here, it would be pretty hard for someone to take that away. As for naturalization, it really depends on who's in charge. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shireen Adel. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.